0: Hey everyone, welcome to this podcast brought to you by RaptorAid and hosted by me, Jimmy Hill. During the coronavirus lockdown, we decided to host some live interviews with raptor conservationists and experts from all over the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded during the lockdown period live on Facebook, Apologies if some of it sounds a little bit disjointed and we go a little bit off track with questions from the audience, but hopefully you'll enjoy listening to your favourite expert right here on Raptor Rambles. In this podcast we're joined by Dr. Gareth Tate, Head of the Bird of Prey Programmes at the Endangered Wildlife Trust South Africa. Now I came across Gareth listening to a webinar that he presented on his work studying martial eagles out in the Karoo. An absolutely fantastic species, but it's not the only one that Gareth works on. And in this interview we find out all about the great work that he and his colleagues do with the Bird of Prey Programme at the Endangered Wildlife Life trust uh, go anyway. right okay I think we are all systems go so uh, welcome anyone tuning in to uh, another raptor Aid facebook live question and answer session uh, I'm really pleased to say we've got dr gareth tate from the Endangered Wildlife Trust in South Africa. Gareth manages the Bird to Prey program. Um, but there's no point in me telling you about it. I'll probably hand over to Gareth to explain a bit about EWT and the Bird of Prey programs, and then yeah, we'll, we'll get into loads of questions about what he does. So welcome, Gareth. Thanks for taking time to chat to us. Um, yeah, Thank tell, you tell us that. a little bit about your role in EWT.
1: Sure. So uh... Yeah, I took over the Birds of Prey program actually from Andre Buerta, who I believe did a talk with you guys a, a while back. Um, and uh, it was t- towards the end of 2016. I took over the program, and I uh, inherited, you know, obviously had to fill some quite big boots um, with with regard to the projects that we we, we were, were active in. And I and a big part of what I did was ha- having to kind of re-strategize and review the program, look at all the data available, and. And kind of change the scope and um and obviously also take on a lot of the old the old work and, and the, the great work that had been done historically by the ewt but um essentially yeah so we we, we developed a, a whole whole suite of projects that are kind of focused in action towards the conservation of birds of prey and uh, the great thing is that we we, we don't only focus on, on on specific species or specific groups of species like just the vultures um, where historically a lot of the work was targeted and we've built the program to to focus on on a variety of diurnal and nocturnal um, raptors um, so we we've, we focus on the research monitoring and the and the actual active applied conservation of these species and I think one of the kind of pillars that we've developed for the program are using these kind of species as, as flagships for the conservation of really incredible habitat um, and I'll give you an example, and we, we, we use animal we use bird species that are, are generally quite specialist in terms of where they need to live and where, what they feed on, and we use those to conserve places like, like I spoke about earlier, the Blider River um, system. It's this incredible riparian system, and in that um, is a very special owl, a Powell's fishing owl, which I'm sure you all know about. And um, so what we're doing is working on different interventions that protect protect the owls. And as I say, they, they're kind of an umbrella species for a host of other animals um, that rely on the same system. So we've, we've set up quite a, a few of these kind of projects using these specialists. We, we work on the African grass owl, um, which covers a massive area in, in the kind of more central areas, the high felt areas of South Africa, um, beautiful grassland. Um, and we work with, you know, a range of different people and farmers and, and communities. To protect the owl and then obviously protect the habitat, um, but I, I obviously can't go on with, without mentioning the vultures, which form certainly do form the core of our program. We um, we are we as we as a lot of us know we're facing an African vulture crisis. Um, seven out of eleven of Africa's vultures, you know, now sitting on critically endangered or endangered globally, um, and their their populations plummeting big time. Um, so a lot of our work is focused on vultures, um, protecting their habitats, creating you know, safe spaces for them to breed and forage in, and addressing all their major threats. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of groundwork done and we, we definitely need, don't want to reinvent the wheel, but we are coming up with some really awesome tools to, to protect them and, and using a lot of technology to protect them, which is quite exciting. And then obviously, we, we also work on, on our larger eagles. As, as you know, you, you saw my presentation on our marsh eagles. Um, we've been yeah. working on eagles in Southern Africa since 2012. We started off our work in Kruger National Park, and now we've spread into this really interesting population in the Karoo, which is in the central part of South Africa, where these eagles are nesting on, on electrical infrastructure, which is quite, quite unique and, and uh, an interesting population least um yeah so a variety of birds of prayer i mean i haven't even touched sides and the different species we work on but um yeah I, I i think if i hand over to you to ask any questions to kind of guide uh, the talk in terms of what you guys want to know and- yeah.
0: Well, no, I was. I was gonna. Obviously, I was gonna. So, I was gonna start at the beginning, really, because I mean, you're. Well, I say at the beginning. Um, so, 2016, you still took over the program. So that's four. There, four years ago. So, mm-hmm. that, I mean, y- y- you only looked like you're about 24 years old, anyway, Gary. You, you, look, <laughs> <laughs> you look, look, you're, So, what did you do? Did you come? Is did you come from? You obviously you've done your PhD. So, talk a little bit. Tell people about your PhD. Anyone who's because people will be interested in what you you did that, and I'm sure.
1: Sure, uh, yeah. So I, I definitely, you know, established an interest for birds from an early age, and I pursued that throughout my, my my studies, and and I managed to land an incredible PhD working on black sparrowhawks, and um, it it kind of ticked all the boxes in terms of what I wanted as a to, in terms of the skills I wanted to develop, um, that I could basically apply to raptor conservation. Um, so working on black sparrowhawks, they're by no means an, in, an endangered or threatened bird. In, in fact, you can kick a tree anywhere in Cape Town and one will fly out probably. But they're a really unique animal. Um, as I mentioned to you earlier, they, they've become, um, they've shown quite a resilience to urbanization and they're basically living amongst people and hunting you know, feral pigeons amongst other things. And uh, they've, with kind of urbanization and, and forestry, they've had this range expansion. So my PhD looked at various aspects of, of their range expansion, and then also how they are adapting to different areas. So the Cape where I live uh, on the peninsula here, is, is very unique in terms of its uh, climate and, and its topography and everything. So it's, it's very different to the rest of South Africa. We've got a Mediterranean climate, and as soon as you move kind of north northwards out of Cape Town, it completely switches around and you start um, having more kind of tropical temperate um, environments. And what's happening on the Cape is that the Sparrowhawks have moved in here. You know, and I think Peter Steyn and a few other guys were the first to kind of record breeding on the peninsula. And that was only in about 1993. It was the first breeding uh, in Sparrowhawks recorded on the peninsula. And... Um, so, there was this really interesting population um, that, that, and study that was being set up on the peninsula with sparrowhawks. And as they became more kind of abundant and established on the peninsula, it was also noted that they were um, the, the, the actual color of their morphs. So, the sparrowhawk occur in two different, two discrete morphs you get the, the light one and the dark morph. Um, and on the peninsula, um, over 80% of the population. Um, are these dark morphs, which are considered rare throughout the rest of their range? As soon as you move out of the out of the Cape, um, you see a complete reversal in the morph ratios. So they they they're more the traditional light morph um, that you that you find throughout their out their distribution. So I, I started investigating what what were the drivers behind these um, these dark morphs and what why were they so successful? And I looked at um, their population genetics. Um, I worked on um, tracking and, and, and GPS tracking them and looking at their movement ecology and their foraging. And then we used nest cameras on about 20 different pairs, collected some really incredible information on what they were hunting and, and basically how they were da- adapting to the local conditions on, in, the, in the peninsula. And the, 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 the increased um, melanin and, and their dark plumage made them better hunters under the, the the conditions in the cape um and we also okay. now look i mean the research is still going on we're looking at um their ability to um the improved immunocompetency so they, they have a, a better ability to um fight off uh, blood parasites so that's another thing we're looking at um which are more abundant in the cape peninsula so this really cool phd and i traveled southern Africa for about six months catching sparrowhawks so you I mean you couldn't really ask for more yeah. than a PhD so yeah lots no. of hard work.
0: And Well, I was just going to say it kind of answers the, the my next question I was just thinking of was what do you enjoy the most sort of when it comes to working with raptors being out in the field which is kind of an, an sort of it answers itself or, or the sort of data crunching and, and that side of things, but I, I can get the gist straight away from your career, listening yeah. to your crew talk and then obviously what you just said about catching, yeah, it's, it's being out in the field, and I'm exactly yeah. the same. Um, I hate being sat in front of a computer, really, doing data. <laughs> I'm work.
1: sure most of us do, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's all about being out there. And of course, the study, the Black Sparrowhawk study, so that was part of a, it's part of a bigger study. I say a bigger study, it's been, as you said, Peter stain and, and others in 2000 and, sorry, 1993. Um, how long has the, how long has the study been running for before you took part then? I know we've mentioned, yeah. Anne, um, running, well, the queen of black Sparrowhawks as you, as you mentioned. So how long has that been running yeah. for?
1: So, yeah, the, the, it's it's an incredible study population, and the the, the research properly kicked off in, in 2000, so a long time ago. Yeah, um, and it's 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 one of the longest running kind of data sets and studies on on a urban raptor, I think, out there. When I was, um, you know, analysing my data and then comparing it to other studies around the world, it really is a unique data set. Um, and we were always a little bit worried. I mean, we, we've been playing around with this, this population and, and, and these birds for such a long time. That some of them have become completely habituated to people. Um, there's a, and and we, were, we were getting a little bit concerned because they were either becoming quite tame or really, really aggressive. So to the point where I had to walk into the forest with my umbrella to keep yeah. them from taking my eyes out and uh, you know you've got a 1.3 kilogram female uh, that's what about a four pound female coming full tilt at you it's a pretty scary and you know intimidating thing so um but but that kind of also opened up so many unique experiences we i i I grew to know each each kind of uh, individual bird that i worked on and and some of them as i say they had very kind of they were very temperamental and you couldn't really approach them or their chicks and then I had some experiences like the chart farm female we called her she was just unbelievable you could climb up to her nest and literally she would sit on the nest um with the chicks and you'd you'd peel away her wing and grab a chick and she would just stand there and um she'd just sit there with her in with her wings fully you know exposed just checking you out and um you know letting us work on her chicks and I followed her for something like four years, and it was pretty sad, but two or three years ago Anne actually called me and she said you know that she flew into a into a fence and and, and broke her neck so but but as I'm, you know, what I'm getting to is it's a very unique um study population and I, I don't think um you you get many of them around the world um yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And, and we ring them so we've we've run seventy percent of the birds, so they they all unique. Wow. Um, so yeah, we, when one flies over, we always make sure we've got our binoculars or photo, you know, our camera on us, so you can identify the guy. So it's
0: yours. yeah, yeah, oh, br- oh brilliant. And that obviously, there's it, it, like you say, the research is still going on, and, and um, yeah, excellent. So you mentioned when yeah. we before we came on, um, talking about Cape Town, obviously I was asking you a few questions before. You mentioned obviously Cape Town's really good for for a number of different raptor species um what 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 other species do you get around sort of the urban environment
1: so we we're quite lucky we've got a mosaic of of kind of an alien and alien forest so we've got plantations of pine and gum and then we've got our indigenous Afro-Montane forest and then it's very mountainous so we've, we've we're on this peninsula that's kind of dominated by table mountain and uh, and all the adjacent mountain ranges and it kind of sets up a really diverse kind of area, and then obviously amongst that you've got your golf courses and your gardens, and and um, there's certainly it certainly supports a variety of, of, of raptors that that feed on things like the, the, the you know your feral pigeons and and the things that come come along with kind of urbanisation and, and green spaces and green belts. Um, so we've got quite a good population of of peregrine falcons. Um, mm-hmm. A good friend of mine, Andrew Jenkins, has been working on them for, for a long time. He's written many a book of, if you, if you Google um, peregrine falcon, South Africa, I'm sure his name will pop up first. So he's been working on them for quite a while. Um, and then we have, the accipitors are also really abundant. So we've got obviously the black sparrowhawks that have moved in, um, rufous-breasted sparrowhawks, which are one of my favorite. They, you know the little cousin of the black spars and one of our big concerns is, is since I even started my work in 2012, um, a lot of the rufous breasted have disappeared, and I think what we what we're noticing is they're being outcompeted by the bigger black sparrowhawks. Mm-hmm. I used to also pick up a lot of kind of prey remains of of these rufous breasted sparrowhawks under the black sparrow nest, so there's definitely competition and overlap in the nesting sites, um, and then we've 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 got Two of, I think there's two pairs of the eagles on the mountains here in, in a place called oh, Silvermine. Yeah. If you're lucky, you can see them. Um, they yeah, they, they, pretty much stick to the mountain ranges where they eat dusties and um, hyraxes. And then we have quite a good population of jackal buzzards. Uh, they do really well here. Um, goshawks, which also have disappeared a little bit um, in response to the black sparrow arriving. And then, yeah, we also have our seasonal um, arrival of our European honey buzzards, which are pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also got really, um, really quite a nice population of forest buzzards, which are, which are quite special to me because they, you know, you don't get them everywhere. They're quite endemic to this area. So, yeah, um, they, they're kind of the more dominant raptors around here. We, we had a hooded vulture arrive here out of the blue. People couldn't believe their eyes when, when they arrived, um, Well, when it arrived. Um, and my f- a friend of mine went out and saw it, it disappeared, and we, we never really kind of followed up, but it was a really interesting uh, and very bizarre to have a, a vulture flying over the peninsula. Um, and then harrier hawks, uh, we've got quite a few of those. They, they as urban as, they, as as a raptor can get, they, you know, they're in and amongst the, the parks and all of that. So yeah, we've, we've got a good healthy population.
0: Brilliant. I've seen because uh, another person I've followed is um, Shane McPherson with his with his Crown Eagles. Um, mm. work. Do you do Crown Eagles get onto down to the Cape and in you know, urban because they're becoming more and more. Not I don't know. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Common might not be the right word, but but I know um I, I, I see things pop up frequently on and it might be what I follow about crowned eagles being in more urban areas in, in South Africa.
1: Absolutely. So I, I I often throughout my PhD and and, and finding sparrow hooks, I'd often find crowned eagles and in these more urban areas. Um they certainly are doing well, and they they kind of adapting to a slightly different diet in the cities to what they what we used to in in, in the more um, traditional areas where they where they live, um, and they're eating things like hardy dars and rock hyraxes, and I mean we're all pretty out of the, over the moon that they're eating hardy dars because I'm not sure if you guys have hardy dole ibises are probably one of the noisiest most gregarious bird we have here, so they. Okay. This ibis that tra- travels around in big groups, it, it has poops everywhere and they're extremely loud, so they wake you up all the time. So we were quite stoked to see that the, the crown, crownies were actually feeding quite a lot on, on hardy Um But yeah, they, they're they an interesting species for, for a large eagle like that, that are generally quite secretive. I mean, they're as secretive as you get. They call them, you know, the leopards of the tree, the, the leopard of, of the eagles. Yeah. Um, and from where I grew up in, in, in the bush up in the east of South Africa, to find a crown eagle was, was incredibly special, you know. Um, yeah. So the, the population in Durban are doing really well and yeah, they they also all over the place, like the sparrow, they're they adapting quite well.
0: Yeah, yeah i just can't get my head i just can't get my head around like I, in the uk I'm, uh, birders go for like at the moment with everyone being on lockdown you know they're doing their garden tick list what can i see in my garden and then, then you yeah. think that the fact that someone could have a crown eagle in, in Durban, like you say come through their back garden or something it just gets yeah, a bit mind-bending really for uh
1: yeah.
0: for, for us brits but that's
1: yeah I, I actually got a message about two or three days ago um with, and a lady said a, she had a crown eagle that's eaten two out of her five cats. So, um, and it's about the third, third message I've got, uh, you know, with regards to pet eating, um, crowned eagles. And it's, it's usually the juveniles and Shane, I, I immediately contacted Shane, um, and his camera trap work on the nest of crowned eagles showed that pets do unfortunately Form a very very small proportion of your diet. It's something like under five percent. Yeah. But when it's when it's your when jingles goes missing and uh, it's it's not taken lightly, you know. Um, and Shane yeah. would, often, would often send me photographs of a cat or a dog on the nest of a crown eagle, and they they can take up take dogs up to the size of a Jack Russell, you know, even bigger. Yeah. Um, so it is concerning, and we've it's interesting. We've also found that it's it's mostly the juveniles that have finally got old enough to leave their territories and being fed by their parents, the parents generally chase them off. They're the problem ones and they can find that, you know, uh, how, what an easy target a pet is and, and they mm. become a little bit of a problem animal and they sit on the balconies watching your animals, you know, that you have to shut indoors. So we, we go and trap them, well I say we, but colleagues of mine, Ben Hoffman and Shane, both go out and they, they'll trap these birds and take them up into the, into the bush, uh, far away from the cities.
0: Good. Good. Yeah. yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Cause it could be a, uh, yeah. Something that's going to get, you know, uh, something you're going to have to deal with progressively more and more, I suppose. Mm. But, uh, mm. Yeah. No, nevertheless. Well, I, I've got a little dog, so uh, yeah, I can, I can understand their pain. But, uh, yeah. absolutely. Uh, yeah. Still nevertheless, it's, it's quite, quite an impressive garden tick in, in, in the same yeah. aspect. Okay. Let's go back to EWT then. And you work with, with EWT. So, yeah, I, I mean, again, in, in the UK, I was just listening to you say about using these flagship species. And I suppose in the in Britain, we've got a similar one in the shape of the barn owl, the, co- the common or your barn owl, Taito alba. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the same, you know, you very much, you know, you, you might find some people a bit standoffish landowners, that don't want to work on, on certain species of raptors. But the minute you mention a barn owl, it, you know, they tend to open the doors up and it's a, <laughs> it's a great species to yeah create dialogue yeah. And, and work with people. So it's, it's interesting to hear um, that work and, and species like the, the grass owl as well. And, and the Pell's fishing owl, do mm. you, do you find that, that, People are quite receptive to your the work that you're carrying out and support the work when it comes to raptors in, in South Africa. And that's quite a big question. Yeah, moment. it's a big, it's
1: a big question, but I guess it's quite also quite important. Um, South Africa is an extremely b- dynamic place um in terms of its its different communities and people that we work with, you know, from, from your livestock farmer all the way through to your kind of Really rural communities that live alongside these massive protected areas that are impacted, you know, um, sometimes by uh, or affected by human wildlife conflict. Um, so it's it's a very dynamic place. Um, and and I must say that generally speaking, we we have it's really encouraging um, how a lot of these people do want to work alongside us. And and you know a lot of the work we do is just kind of general awareness and then a lot of people don't really understand or the species we work on and how important they are in, in the environment and in the, in the ecosystem, especially when you're talking about things like vultures that have a really important ecosystem service. Um, so generally speaking, I think the people we work with are really receptive uh, I, with our Marshall Eagle project, which I've been um, really putting a lot of blood, sweat and tears into you over the last two years. Um, we're going into these areas where farmers don't see many people. And, and I can't explain to you, even last week, um, we went and spoke, a, to, spoke to a farmer about a marsh eagle that went down, one of our track birds went offline. And this guy just gave me the house, his keys to his house and said, you can stay here. He has, there's some beers in the fridge and, and they're so open and, and hospitable, it's incredible. Um, changes their mindsets because a lot of them do shoot things like marsh eagles um they they prey on lambs and um they are but they can be they've got a bit of a bad rape around south africa marsh eagles they eat chickens and, and and lambs and many people hold those quite close to their heart mm,
0: yeah well it was i years. mean p- part of part of the question was you know talking about crowned eagles just before and and packs is, is one conflict but then also, I remember from the webinar, you're talking about how you're using, um, you've introduced like an alert system based on, because you can tell with the GPS tracking where birds are going to be potentially or are. Mm. Um, it was quite interesting to hear the different, yeah, different ways that you're, you're working with landowners because it really doesn't in in the uk it's it's not like that at all if we talk if we look at the two species of eagle or, or one species golden eagles and one of the conflict being gra- mm. shooting mm-hmm. and interests it's yeah i could never imagine con- conservationists ringing up a gamekeeper saying there's an eagle just on your side of the boundary that that so it's really yeah it's quite interesting from from your aspect to hear that it's working in that mm. sense, that you can work. I'm sure there's still, I'm sure it doesn't always work in that that sense. But uh, mm. but yeah, do do you ever get? Is it one of those where you think when you came up with the idea specifically about Marshall Eagles and sharing uh, what could be potentially deemed as sensitive information in where a bird is? Have you mm. did you have to sit back and and think should we do this? Shouldn't we? Or was it quite straightforward? So yeah, it's,
1: I, I guess it's um it was one of the ways to open the doors to working with with these farmers. So, and and there's been generations and generations of farmers that were brought up to shoot eagles as kind of vermin, you know. So um, a lot of them are kind of also tired and fatigued about hearing about um you know these greenies coming in to protect the eagle at all costs without really um, considering their situation and and you know one lamb is a thousand five hundred rand which is how many a hundred quid or so
0: yeah, yeah. um
1: and you've got to also see it from their side that when they are losing six sheep a week was well, no not a week i mean marshals will probably kill one a month um, but that's compounded by the amount of sheep taken by jackal as well and caracals and all of that so you can start seeing the picture that it is an issue and it's their livelihood so one of the ways we, we, we get to kind of engage with them is, is beyond the education and awareness around the conservation of the birds, is to start developing conservation interventions that work for them too. And I think this one, it, it, it stops them shooting the birds, you know, straight up, because now we can engage with them. We say, listen, this is a tool, let's start preparing it. And, and we take them out and we actually catch the birds, let them handle the birds, um, show them what they look like close up and what an incredible animal is they are, um, and that just kind of plants the seed. Um, so the early warning system, as I say, it's really at its early, early stages, um, but it's just one of the avenues to start developing kind of new ideas to, to get farmers on board. And, and we do it with wild dogs up in, 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 in certain parts of South Africa where we call us some wild dogs. And I mean, wild dogs can go into a camp and kill hundreds of you know game breeders prime live uh, game you know heads of game uh, uh, buck or whatever it may be um or antelope and we've also now started an early warning system and we let the farmers know when the dogs are in their in their property so
0: yeah yeah, I suppose. It, yeah, it's a case. I'm a, I mean, I'm a farmer's son, so I know exactly what farmers can be like. <laughs> could be like, um, and it is. It. It. I. I like. I like the idea of building building bridges. And and I suppose if you're if you're willing to be open with with them, it but it as i say i think in in the uk we're a long way in many respects from that with with some of the species that we we have com- human wa- wildlife conflict with so mm-hmm. yeah it was, it was really interesting to hear the martial eagle so- side of things and, and yeah to see to see how that, how that develops and i suppose well it must work if they're letting you have, have access to the house and their fridge because i don't know many farmers in the uk that would let you drink their beer but anyway that's, oh that's God, the, no. uh, <laughs> it's a it's
1: a it's a re- re- like salt-of-the-earth breed in, in, in the Karoo yeah. and the Kalari where we work it's I mean you end up spending so much time drinking coffee and beer with them that you can't get down to your work they just yeah they don't see many people I think they, they've got these massive farms you know thousands of hectares and uh, they they don't see many people so they they're all delighted when we, when we rock up there and
0: and it's. good Good, I'm, I'm glad to hear, hear that, that's going well. Um, just talking about, so how many's in the team then at EWT? How many have you got working with, with you in, in your programmes? So we've, you got,
1: um, we've got uh, five permanent staff um, and they're, ba- they're based at, at satellite offices across the country. Our hub is in, in, in that Kruger National Park area. Uh, which we call the low felt, which is, it's, it's um, unbelievably beautiful and diverse. And that's where there's just a, a, a hotspot for raptors and, and vultures and all the birds we work on. Um, so we've got an office there with John and Lindy, they're based up there. John heads up all our eagle and, and, and owl research and conservation. Lindy does all our vulture work up there. And then moving more into the central parts of South Africa, We've got uh Renal station there. She's a, an, an Afrikaans field officer. So she's obviously a great um, value to the program because she can speak Afrikaans and engage with a lot of the Afrikaans farmers and stuff. She does a lot of work with, with vultures in particular. Um, throughout the Kalahari, we've we actually every single year we have the Hawk um, uh, the Hawk Conservancy Trust. Mm-hmm join us and, and they tag birds along with us and we've, we've built a really cool relationship up with, with the War Conservancy and Campbell Murn and his team. Yep. And we travel and we bring over a hundred vultures every year and we tag them with these potagial tags. Do I have one here? Um, but essentially it's a cattle ear tag. Um, and we we, we we fit them onto the bird's wings and um, we've getting incredible information around the survival and dispersal and breeding um, biology of birds through these petagel tags um, and then i'm based in the cape uh, but i'm all over the place so i spend probably two weeks a month and you know out, out, out of the city in the field and, and working but what's really great is we've got a big network of of and partnerships with other organizations and individuals we've got quite a good volunteer base that help us um, we we have a lot of students on board um, so that's a nice way to get our, our work published and 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 have kind of research guided work um, to make sure that we're making impact and and doing things correctly, um, addressing threats correctly. So yeah, we've we we've got a big team, although it's, they're not all permanent. But we've we've been quite good at establishing a network of also people that can work for free because <laughs> being an NGO, we need people to work for free and help us. Well, yeah.
0: Well, yeah, yeah. Con- conservation, no, no, yeah, conservation full stop. Yeah, absolutely. Need to work through. Uh, so talking about students, because that's, we talked about briefly bits. I mean, that's one thing that Raptor Aid and I'm really, really passionate about is, is sort of giving people the opportunities to learn about, um, you know, birds of prey and, and projects like and organisations like EWT and all over the world. What sort of, is, is there many opportunities that, that come up for students working on projects with EWT or through universities alongside EWT?
1: Yeah, so what's quite, what's quite nice is a few of us at the EWT are research associates, research associates with, with different universities in South Africa. Um, I'm, I'm a research associate with um, the Fitzpatrick Institute of African Ornithology. And then a few of us are um, also affiliated with universities up in KwaZulu-Natal and in, in Johannesburg, so we have a, kind of a access to students, um, most, mostly postgraduate students, students because a lot of our work is field-based, um, it requires at least, you know, spending a lot of time up to a year in the field, um, but we also have these really big data sets that we kind of also um, tap into the universities for to analyze and and, and write up in publications and scientific publications. So, um, so in terms of South African students, we've, we've got quite a nice flow of students into, into the kind of work that we're doing and, and, and tapping into the projects that we're active in. Um, we are trying to open up doors to get more kind of international interest. Um, we, um, we work quite closely with the Peregrine Fund and Wageningen University. Uh, so we have, we're trying to establish maybe some sort of exchange pro- program with the Dutch. Um, and then we also, um, Andre Buerte has, is a, is a, um, one of the field, he has a partnership with the University of Reading. So mm-hmm. with Cameron and, and Hawk, the whole Hawk Conservancy Trust. So yeah. we've got a network of students um, and we're always looking to get more students on board and, and uh, we've got a, a ton of data and that always needs to be analyzed. And we've got some really cool projects that, as I say, with the, with our pals fishing our project, you know, a lot of our breeding seasons overlap. So we're just all over the place trying to make sure we're getting cameras installed and, and birds monitored. And so we need to get as many students and, and volunteers on board. So, yeah, always oh, good.
0: Up. No, that's, uh, that's great to hear. And as I said to you before I came on, that's one of the. And I mentioned it to John the other day in an email. I said to you, John Davis. It's one of the questions I get asked when I go into universities and just to, to do talks and various things about um, birds of prey. I, I get asked, you know, how can we get into it? How do, and, and I'll, Well, I'll ask you the same question then, Gareth, that, that I get asked that, that I mentioned to you before. See if you can... I'm, I'm a bit pointed with it now, but but if a young... you've probably been asked it. If a young person were to ask you an undergrad, say... How do I get into raptor monitoring? Go on. What, what would be your two pence worth of advice? Um, you know,
1: it, it obviously, if if that's your interest and you want to pursue raptor research and monitoring, then you need to get involved in it at an early age. And um, I think university is a great place to start doing that. I I took as many um, I took advantage of as many kind of um, field based work and monitoring as possible and I got involved in things like um, the avu faunal monitoring for wind farms in, in South Africa. So we did a lot of like pre-construction monitoring of, of different bird communities in in, in South Africa um, in areas where they were going to develop wind farms. So th- I got involved in, in that and I I just put my hand down to help volunteer with, with some of the work and crew on Marshall Eagles and I just kind of Put my name up there, got my you know fingers in the, in every pie, and um, and uh, it, it, that helps a lot. It starts exposing you to to the work, and and then it kind of also sets you up to be able to study them because you, you you develop these relationships with um with with the, the researchers around the country, and and then you 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 often find your supervisor, and then you can also you know find a project that kind of aligns with what you're wanting to to, to get involved in. So just getting, getting out there and being a little bit kind of, yeah, just in, in, in people's faces and make sure that you, you, you take every opportunity out there, even though you're studying, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't really, you know, volunteer and get involved in, in every as much as possible.
0: Yeah. Well, that, that, exactly. That's what I say to a lot, a lot of them, because a lot of them, as you say, you know, it, it's all well and good going to university and going on doing a master's and, 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 but yeah, I think you've got to you've got to get field experience as well. You've got to be out yeah. you've got to be out there do, doing something. And you're right, you build up connections as well. You meet people, you know, and, and talk to people who've been there and done it or, or you know, and yeah, as well as learning on, on the sort of on the job or whatever it is you're studying. So yeah, we're kind of on the, the same same hymn sheet. That's uh yeah that's good. So Tell me, have you? What's? Is there anything on the horizon for EWT bird, bird of prey programs? Or by the sounds of things, you've got that much cooking at the moment, you know. And obviously, vultures and, uh, are in such a, a sorry state at the moment that, yeah, you, I don't know whether you have much time to think about what what else. Obviously, the Karoo project. Is, is there anything else really planned? Or
1: yeah, we we've, we've got. We've got some exciting stuff happening happening with our vulture conservation work, and it involves, you know, partnerships with with other um, um, organizations like bird focused organisations like BirdLife South Africa. Um, but we we're starting to think really big, and um, we've we've got a really good network in Southern Africa across the SADC, um, so the South African Development the yeah, Southern African Development Countries. Um, and we we're partnering up with with ngos and conservation authorities across um, these southern african countries and um, it's it's a, an approach that we're really needing to to adopt for for the conservation of ulcers because they just are a big challenge just because of their, their their ability to move and they they certainly don't take borders into consideration so they're just so highly mobile that you can't really conserve them in, in one area so you need this kind of Holistic approach. So, what's really exciting is we're starting this kind of cross-border collaboration um, with with some 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 of the the organisations in Southern Africa, and um, it's allowing us to, to really tackle you know the key threats to vultures in in in, in the region, um, and also achieve a bigger impact. It's not not just one organisation going in. Um, so, just to kind of elaborate on that a bit. So. In, in southern Africa, we have a big, big problem with poisoning um, vultures, are, it's, it's the biggest driver for, for declines in vultures across, across Africa and poisoning um, occurs in kind of two different forms. Uh, we get direct poisoning and indirect poisoning. So vultures are either directly um, poisoned and, and killed and harvested for their body parts, which, which often are, are used in, and, and traded in, in traditional medicine. I'm not sure if you've been reading the news, but that one of the biggest poisoning events um, in the world and in history mm-hmm. has now happened with vultures in, in Guinea-Bissau, where over 2,000 critically endangered hooded vultures were, were poisoned and, and, and their body parts were removed. Um, so in Africa, part of the traditional, part of the tradition is to, to, is they prescribed vulture body parts, in particular the brains and the head. And they they prescribe that by traditional practitioners and they take it they take it in um, with the idea that it's going to give them foresight and, and bring them luck so it's quite a, an interesting thing why they're actually taking these body parts so if, if someone wants to kind of play the lotto they go out and they, they find a traditional healer and they um, they are prescribed and, and given vulture vulture brains um, so really interesting so they're directly targeted for for their body parts, and that, that's obviously driving quite a lot of, of the decline in vultures. They're also directly persecuted because vultures are have a, a unique way of giving away the location of a carcass. And I'm not sure if Andre, I don't want to go into too much detail, but the, it's called um, it's 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 called sentinel poisoning. So what the poachers are doing, and it's 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 very closely linked to elephant poaching. Um, the vultures are giving away the location of these elephant and rhino carcasses. The rangers are able to follow up on these carcasses quicker and get onto the tracks and, and catch these, these the perpetrators. So what they're doing is they're putting poison baits out in the, in the landscape and they're systematically removing vultures from the landscape. And we are having um, some of the ma- the biggest loss of vultures due to sentinel poisoning in, in, in southern Africa. Um, it's a huge issue, and it's it's what we think happened in Botswana last year, July, when we when over five hundred vultures were killed on one elephant carcass. Um, so so this poisoning is driving these declines, and what we've taken is this is this approach to to tackle it both reactively um, through what we do is is and what Andre does mainly outside of South Africa is this poisoning intervention training. So we capacitate teams and, and response units to be able to respond to a poisoning event um, and stop it in its tracks and and prevent further loss of, of birds as you can imagine you leave a carcass out in, in, in the landscape that's got poison on it um, it's going to kill a hell of a lot of, of, of animals not only vultures it's, it's often other scavengers so yeah. um, and the poisons they're using carbamates and and a local um, agrochemical called temic that is also a, it's a it's a aldicarb um to keep it's, it's used to treat um nematodes in, in maize and and, and sugarcane it's highly highly toxic they call it two-step in south africa because people often take it and they take two steps and they're dead right so yeah, yeah. They're mixing that with with water and they're basting it on on carcasses so the longer carcasses out in the field the more animals it's going to kill. So we, we train people how to recognize a poisoning scene, recognize the symptoms in the animals that have taken in these poisons. Um, often we come across scavengers like hyenas very, showing very distinct symptoms, you know, um, and, and, um, and a variety of different symptoms also in the birds. And they know exactly how to respond to that, how to decontaminate the scene, how to treat it as a crime scene and collect evidence to follow up. Um, you know, prosecution of, of people that are caught in that area, often we, we actually catch the perpetrators, but there's no chain of evidence. Um, so we're doing a lot of reactive work um, to address this huge spike in poisoning across Southern Africa. And as I say, it's, it's cross, cross border. Um, and and we have quite a unique setup where we have a lot of communities living on the borders of these national parks. Kruger has 2 million people just on its Western boundary. So you can imagine there's there's all this, there's a there's a high kind of level of infiltration of people into the park and and doing various illegal activities. So we need to work in those communities. And a lot of the work we also do is more proactive, is actually working with the communities. Um, what we're also finding is that a lot of the, the body parts that they're actually consuming as part of traditional medicine have traces of and of these toxins, of these poisons that are used. So Um, we did a bit of work actually analyzing these body parts um, and and the parts that are most often consumed are the heads and and the Mm -hmm. beaks that take in the poison. So we took a whole safeguarding human health approach and went into the clinics, into the traditional authorities, the the traditional healers, and we started working with them and, and just raising awareness around the fact a lot of them didn't know they were prescribing their customers um these poisons and, and no one wants to prescribe poisons to their customers they're going to lose them very quickly um but yeah we've, we've got quite a, a suite of of tools that we're actually using to to address the poisoning issue the biggest one is 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 trying to address it in a reactive manner which is a bit of a tough one because we're not stopping the poisoning happening yeah but we're capacitating enough people out there and individuals and and, and response units um, to be able to really curb the, um, the number of wildlife killed on, on these poison carcasses. Um, and uh, yeah, as I say, vultures also killed indirectly, so often what happens is you, you have human wildlife conflict, um, a lion will break out of a park and it will kill someone's livestock, they'll go and poison that lion, the vultures feed on the lion that's been successfully eliminated, plus the carcass left out there for, for the lion. Also feed on that; they become the indirect victims. So, it's a it's a tough thing to to. It's a very challenging threat to address. Um, We've got a really exciting tool that we're using, and I mean, I'm not really allowed talking too much about it because it is quite sensitive. But it's basically an early warning system that we're setting up in the landscape using different tracked animals. So we have these high resolution. Tracking devices out on a variety of animals, birds, um, uh, scavengers, lions, everything, and we're developing different algorithms to to be able to identify when there's a feeding event and where there's a potential poisoning event, and it's giving us eyes eyes in the sky, a whole new oh, wow. level.
0: So, um, really exciting. Well, um, oh, that is good. Fun. But yeah, yeah. it just—I mean—it just goes to show, like you say, because we—we did—we talked to Andre about um, the Guinea Bissau, and and a couple of people asked about about that anyway before, or asked me to ask about that before, because um, it had been in the news. And it, yeah, it is—it's—it's it's, it's not just when you talk. South Africa is vast, you know, but then you've got the whole African continent. That these vultures travel, you know, north, south, east, west, and in between. So you know, yeah. it's, not, it's not just. And then you've got the. I mean, it's an area that, fully enough, you talking about it. I've just today been emailing Campbell about um, about traditional medicine because it's an area I'm really interested in. Um, is the human rat, rat bird of prey sort of conflict side of things? So it, it fascinates me in 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 some in many ways. Um, that side of things, so but you've got that element of people, you know, whether they're trying to survive or whether they're trying to yeah, whether they're trying to understand what, what the lottery numbers are going to be, all this, you know, crazy stuff, yeah, it's uh, there's so many sort of things you've got to deal deal with. But it's it's interesting. Yeah. Campbell uh, sorry Andre talked about um, yeah the work with the Hawke Conservancy Trust and the poison response kits that they developed. So it is you know it's great it's great to hear the different different things that are uh, that that you're working on and then obviously mm. the sort of top secret James Bond by the sound of things stuff that's getting get getting get yeah. developed as well. I mean we um, he-
1: there was an interesting paper out the other day using albatrosses to find illegal Japanese trawlers. Um, okay. So there's there's some really work, cool work. You know, a lot of the work done by Max Max Planck, um, the Max Planck Institute, mm-hmm. tracking animals around the world and picking up having an early warning system for things like earthquakes. These animals are behaving in certain ways when there's earthquakes or tsunamis. Um, so there's really Really cool applications for for tracking technology and stuff out there. So technology is definitely um, opening up new doors in, in the ways we we conserve animals.
0: Yeah, oh, brilliant. So what? So obviously, you're let's we'll talk about a bit about what you're up to again. So you you you're obviously here, there, and everywhere. But as, as you said, but you've got the Marshall eagle working in Karoo, What is that? And is that an like? And sort of seasonal thing, or obviously it's it's not with with certain aspects of it. What what are you busy with at the moment, or as soon as lockdown passes, what's what's the first job on the list?
1: Sure. So we we're really fortunate because we've all been given essential services permits. So while while South Africa's is on a national lockdown, we we're able to get on the roads and 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 do our work. Um, so last week I actually went out to the Karoo because one of our GPS track birds uh, went offline and, and often a big part of this study is trying to identify why these birds are, what's killing them in, in the Karoo, And um, so I went out there uh, and often these birds fly and fly into power lines or, or get electrocuted on, on unsafe power lines. And this particular bird did get electrocuted. So it's it's really important for us to identify what the different threats are in the karu. Um, Some of our birds have just gone offline and mice, Suspicion is they've been shot um, and then the, the tracking device is destroyed. One site had a wind farm nearby and marshals are oh, one of the more collision prone species with, you know, with, with, with wind turbines. Um, so I do suspect that that could have been the case. And that was just kind of brushed under the carpet because I wasn't, wasn't allowed to access on that wind farm. Um, so in terms of my activities next, um, we, we were we meant to be doing an aerial survey across a big part of, south africa um it's a thousand seven hundred and fifty kilometers um round trip and uh well, i was actually meant to be doing that this week um and that's to identify which nests which marsh eagle nests are active in, the, in, in our Karoo study site um we're probably gonna have to do that by ground now because it's um we can't get in the air because of the lockdown so i'm, I'm more than likely going to be doing that um i've also got a farmer that's struggling with a marshal that's killing lambs. It's killed six since the beginning of March. So I want to go out there and, and catch that bird and put a tracker device on it so we can, we can set up that early warning system for him and, and, and maybe even just scare the eagle away a bit from that area. Often when you catch a bird um, in a certain area, they'd never go back. Um, and then we've got our poisoning intervention work in Kruger National Park. So they've had a huge spike in poisoning. So within the next month, I'm going to be traveling up to Kruger, where we have to train over 600 rangers, field rangers, um, and, and distribute these poisoning response kits. Uh, so we've got a lot of work. yeah. And at the same time, we also got a really cool study on cape vultures, which we, we, we get, we've we caught 10 birds. Um, and we've fitted them with these, these high resolution tracking devices. We need to catch another three. Um, and we, we're using those birds and that tracking information to develop these collision risk maps for south africa and this is specifically with wind farms because there's a massive movement of of wind energy in south africa um, of government endorsed sites to to become these development zones for in for wind energy Um, cape vultures are getting whacked by wind turbines and we're worried about the cumulative impact of these wind farms so we're tracking birds and we're developing these really high resolution Predictive models that show where there's high collision risk for cape vultures and, and that informs wind development and it, it it helps us exclude high risk areas um, from yeah. development. And I think that's really important for us. And I was actually just working on a on a map of our birds. So I caught a cape vulture in March, fitted with a tracking device, and this bird just flew, it went A-Wall. It just it, it traveled across the entire map of South Africa. Um, it came down to a colony here in the Cape, and it just said, I'm going to the Kalahari. It's now in Namibia. So, wow. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm not sure if I can share my screen. Um, I don't know if I can let
0: you. Um,
1: let me know if this is sharing. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, that's all. So, so this, this is the, these are all our capes that we're tracking for this um, wind wind farm project. Yeah. Um, so, the, the wind, the development zones here in the Eastern Cape into the Karoo in the center here. Um, this is the one bird I'm speaking about. It just, it, it, it <laughs> and it just decided in a, in a few days just to fly. And I mean, this is massive. This is like, yeah, it's, a, it's really far. It's over a thousand kilometers. Um, and um, yeah, you can just see how, how extensively these birds move. But what's really interesting is a lot of the birds are coming back to this area, to the east of Lesotho, um, because there's a lot of breeding yeah. colonies. So they, they're getting ready, they're gearing up for breeding, which is really cool. And all the youngsters are these ones that are moving throughout these areas up into Namibia. So that's very cool.
0: Then, well, that's what I, I was, that's what I was going to ask you, and a, you before you answered it, was the, the pink or the pinky red dot. It, uh, I'm assuming that's a young bird that's just wandering about. Is it trying to find its way in life, so to speak?
1: Absolutely! Yeah. this
0: bird—um, this this bird went on on definitely on a
1: little bit of a walkabout, um, or a flyabout. So it's 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 really incredible. And what 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 really amazed me is when you look at the timestamps. And I I actually want to maybe write this up in a small um just a small article. this bird flew at night during a full moon? Oh. Nothing really has been documented in these birds. So um. Oh really interesting yeah these tracking devices are opening up new, new doors for us they really are yeah,
0: so just I mean just looking at that map and, and like you say Les- Lesotho and, and, and where the colonies are is uh, this doesn't I don't mean this to be a stupid question is that the sort of areas where wind farms they're looking at putting turbines in and I've been I've been lucky enough to go to Lesotho it's incredible mm. um and unbelievable place that, yeah is that the sort of thing that wind farms are? Are they looking at putting them up? Because obviously vultures need updrafts, lift to to get off the ground. And, and is that a clash? Is that in terms of where wind farms are looking to develop to harness wind or? or no?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So so there's a, a massive overlap in in terms of where these birds like to fly and where they where they have these almost like flight highways, um, and they. They they slope, slope soaring and they and they're riding ridge lines um, and that's exactly where they're wanting to put turbines and I've done a bit of an analysis here but you'll start seeing all these hot spots where these birds spend a lot of time so when you when you what we're able to do is extrapolate this and and overlay this uh, these heat maps basically these risk maps over areas where they're wanting to develop wind farms and you can literally show them down to the you know down to the, the nearest kilometer, to the nearest meter, where is a good place and where isn't a good place to, to build a mm-hmm. turbine. Um, most of the wind farms that we are now currently working on are in this kind of area, so around mm-hmm. Queen Town. Um, and then there are quite a few here in Central South Africa where Cape vultures are actually locally extinct, although you can see they do travel past here. With my birds, you can see they are, they are there. Um, so yeah, they they certainly are traveling in areas that, and there's this big overlap where there's a lot of wind and where they can harness wind and where our birds like to spend their time. So we need to address these and, and stop wind farms from being built there.
0: And uh, Well, yeah, of course, just going back to what you said then, obviously, where, where Cape vultures are currently locally extinct, it's... I suppose you you run the risk of of these wind farm companies saying, well, there's no vultures here. We'll stick, you know, we'll stick some up. But that doesn't mean there shouldn't be vultures there, you know. And yeah. and that doesn't mean to say work isn't going to mean that vultures move back into there. But so yeah, well, you've got your yeah. hands for. You know, that's really interesting to see those maps and the heat the heat maps, especially in this the stuff you're working on. And it just goes to show, you know, what 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 amazing stuff technology is bringing to the. You know, to the fore with uh, with yeah, raptor conservation. Um, okay. Well, we're nice on it. Before before we finish, I don't want to keep you for too long, Gareth, because I'm well aware it's your evening over there or early evening. Like it is. As here. You can see
1: in the background, it's got a bit dark.
0: <laughs> well, it's all, it's all right. It's blue sky outside here, but I just <laughs> I wanted to touch on. I, I I'm not going to ask you that dreaded question that I keep tripping up and asking people. But yeah, what sort of well, first of all, I want to ask you about owls, because we get a lot of I get a lot of people who who are passionate about owls. In the UK, all over the world, owls attract people. You know, they, they draw people in. Um, I'm lucky enough, this sounds really daft. I've been to South Africa twice. I've I've never seen a petals fishing owl, but I own a petals fishing owl feather I found on the banks. Um, and uh, forget which one it is so that's that's as close as I've ever got to to one but um what's up yeah just talk quickly not quickly talk as long as you're willing to on on some of the work you're doing on owls and any of the conflict that you or or not necessarily conflict on that you're finding with with the owl species you're working on. Sure um with the pals
1: um actually some great news today we found um, our team went out and they found two active territories and it's such a, an important finding for us because these birds are they spaced out so so their population is so um, their densities are so low um, and they, they rely so heavily on these pretty pristine environments so you know we, we currently monitor 17 pairs and and for us and, and for the South African population it's a hell of a lot of birds and to work on um, them, areas it's extremely challenging so um it's it's this thick riparian habitat we've got in most of the areas we've got things like leopards and hippos and crocodiles um so working on them has has a hell of a lot of challenges um but it's been one of the most exciting projects that we do um so we monitor these pairs um within these pristine habitats but what's what's happening and what's impacting these habitats is obviously what's happening upstream so a lot of the tributaries that flow into our study site, um, uh, and especially the uh, the river, like the Olifants River, are heavily polluted, and it's it's, it's really affecting our study population. Um, so the work that we do is focusing on first of all the the smaller lower hanging fruit. So working with farmers and stuff to reduce their water extraction, reduce their amount of um, uh, of their pesticides running off into the river systems, um, and then yeah. we move way into the catchments where it's quite nice because you have this overlap and they they complete they worlds apart in terms of the habitat and the species but we're linking our work with our grass owls our grass owls basically nest and live in the catchment areas of the oolifants and, and blider river and we are working on these areas to you know reduce mining reduce anthropogenic um, fragmentation and disturbance of those sites so that we we protect the integrity of the catchments as well um, so yeah, so back to the PALS, Um, they're a really challenging bird to work on. Um, we've we've been chased by many a hippo. We've we've actually been trying to catch PALS to to fit them with tracking devices because no one knows anything about their spatial ecology. Um, these river systems have these massive flood events, and and flood, um, flooding is a massive issue because it's it's wiping out a lot of their trees. They need very old trees to breed in they they breed in the cavities of these massive figs and these yeah. uh, these, uh, uh, these trees and and these beautiful jackalberries um and what's happening is an, an increased pulse of floods and flooding events because of the the catchment areas um is is causing loss of a lot of this riparian habitat and it's it's also a very hard thing to address and we are looking into reforesting some of these areas through um planting trees and, and protecting those trees, um, but I'm a bit all over the place now, but yeah, so we monitored 17, about 17 pairs of these owls and, and obviously they, they are indicator species for how the, the system's doing. Um, and we, we, we've been trying to trap them and I mean our last trapping event was sitting in a hide in the middle of the dark, middle of the forest pitch black and a hippo walked right past the, the hide. And, um, and then you start hearing, you know, leopards calling. And when you start feeling a little bit safe, then you start hearing, you know, things coming in and out of the water at night. So it's, it's been a big challenge. Um, we haven't been able to catch any yet, but we've, we've I think we've got a really cool technique that we're going to try out this year um, towards the end of the year when, when breeding picks up. And um, But I think I just want to show you a, a photo, a video from today. We found one of our pals. Um, love,
0: go, yeah, go for it.
1: Uh, let me just quickly share so this is um, probably yeah as i say one of a very exciting time because we found a a nest where where this this youngster hatched from and we don't get to monitor them from from egg to 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 being you know throughout development to when they fledge can you see the video yeah 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 this is a beautiful pals fishing owl chick look at the (laughs)
0: the
1: eyes so John sent this to me today. He, he's fortunate enough to be able to get out into the field. Um, and, and yeah, so this, this pair we've been monitoring for quite a while, quite interesting, but they how they survive is just, it's just incredible because they're harassed by baboons all the time. Um, and then we also followed a chick in this territory almost to fledging and just out of nowhere we set up a camera trap another owl came and a Powell's fishing owl actually predated on the chick and killed the chick which is something we never knew happened so um wow. and it fed on the chick so it was just a really wow. unique and, and pretty disturbing sight but um the, yeah. you know, breeding has just been so low and so um their productivity in this population has just been incredibly low um and you know all the literature speaks of of a breeding season we've been finding the opposite of these owls are breeding throughout the year um we've, we've got no set breeding season for them so it's also kind of thrown a spanner in the works when you monitoring chick development and and chick health and the next thing yeah. out of nowhere appears a, a juvenile flying around you like how, yeah, yeah. how did that come from um, yeah. so it's been a very challenging project but also really rewarding we we walk around we do these annual surveys of about 90 kilometers Kilometers of this river system and we've been, we've been counting the pairs every year since about 2007. Um, and we've just seen a, a steady decline in both the trees that they need to nest in and also breeding pairs. I think last year we only had three adults um, in this 90 kilometer stretch of river. So big challenge, um, big challenge. And what we're actually doing now is we found these 17 birds that we're now monitoring intensively sit on a, on a pretty pristine river that runs alongside one of our focal study sites. And this is, so you get the Funts River and the Blider River that run kind of parallel. Um, okay. The one that's so heavily polluted. And now we found the Blider which is this incredibly pristine river that flo- flows up into one of the longest green canyons in the world called the Blider River Canyon. And, um, and what we're doing is we're working on, on protecting this blighter with, with as much you know, resources as we can. And we're working with a lot of the farmers to set up stewardship so they become kind of custodians of these different owls and their habitat. So it's been a really cool project for us. Yeah, so the owl work is, is, is really interesting.
0: No, that, I mean, that's awesome. Thank you for that video as well. Eh? People I think people will love that. I mean, how you can't fall in, in love with an owl chick <laughs> like that. Like... I don't know. Anyway, right. It, I, I've taken up, I put, we've probably taken up more than enough of your time, Gareth. So I won't. No problem at all.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm in no rest. No,
0: I'm in
1: no rest don't, during don't this lockdown, so I'd, I'd
0: rather <laughs> do it. Well, I was, only, I was only going to ask you that other, that other question about any interesting stories. You, well, I, I, you know, I'd said to you about how I, I asked people about, uh, you know, tell us the the most memorable moment, but you can't really because there's so many there's so many of them. Um, especially if you sat in a hide, just one of the you've already explained one with leopards and hippos and and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, outside. But yeah, if you've got one one thing that comes to mind that that really sticks with you, feel free to feel free to elaborate on what now I will tell you what I'll ask you one species that you would love to love to see in the wild or or study or work on either or what what's yeah. on the bucket list still I, I
1: doesn't, mean doesn't
0: have, doesn't have to be harpy, South African eagle. But...
1: Harpy eagles are always it's, <laughs> I have to see one. that's on my bucket list uh, obviously I I love eagles and I, I get to work on Africa's biggest eagle which is which has been really incredible but a, a harpy eagle, absolutely. That would that would really blow my mind. And then, yeah, I think there's just so many of them out there. I I, I can't really pick one, pick one out.
0: Well, you know, you know, we had um, again, about. It might have been the last one we did. No, it was the second from last one we did. We had Everton Miranda on from Brazil talking about Harpy Eagles. So Amazing. and all, all his work with Harpy Eagles and the eco-tourism they're doing by building building platforms with the farmers so photographers can come and and you know it it's like trickles down and benefits the the farmers and the landowners And in there. Interestingly, I did think about this then when you were talking about Pell's um, owls and and one of the ways they've They've worked with finding harpy eagle nests is by um, is by paying the, the the farmers that are working in the forests to you know understand what what a harpy eagle sounds like and nest sites look like and, and yeah they're doing a, they're doing a lot of work on on that so check it out if you get chance have a look at Everton's and he's the other thing is he's nice a really seat. nice guy as well so get in touch with him he's cool I'm nice sure. <laughs> So you, you, you actually just reminded me of,
1: of one of the, the the tools we're actually going to start using for PAL. So they're very vocal. And um, and, I, and as I mentioned, the, the study sites have been incredibly challenging because of it's this thick, dangerous bush. And um, I, I remember chatting to my field officers, John and Lindy. Um, they sent me photographs of that just from a day surveying, their clothes were ripped to shreds from just trying to get through the undergrowth and... Get to the the islands and stuff where these birds breed. So one really exciting thing that we're starting to do is we we're building our own acoustic monitors, our acoustic receivers. And what we're going to do is we're going to put them out. Um, we were going to buy um, buy some, but they're quite expensive. So we are starting to look at making our own. And we've we've assembled a few, we've got parts parts from from the UK and from the states and different yeah. microphones. So you leave them out in 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 the territories and you just listen, you leave them out for like three or four weeks and then you retrieve these audio receivers and um, you download the, the, obviously the audio and we, we've got special software that can start identifying, you know, the signature of the PALS fishing owls calls and then you get presence, absence and then you know exactly where to focus your work. And, and, and it's just really gonna be, be really useful for us because this on, the foot, on foot approach is really, really challenging.
0: Well, it's funny you should mention that because in my cupboard, I have got my own handmade (laughs) or homemade, like exactly the same thing. So it's like a a sealable... Um, I don't know lunchbox with a with a Tascam thingy in, and then the external microphone. Because I was going to do the same thing for uh, hobby European um, hobbies in this yes. country, because they're notoriously very difficult to monitor, but they can be quite vocal around nest sites. Um, and so I made one because exactly the same as you. I looked at the professional ones, and they were like two and a half thousand pounds to buy one. I was like, well, yeah, that that isn't going to happen. So oh, <laughs> I'd be interested to hear how you get on with with your ones, because you probably yeah i'm not very good at making stuff like that so um so yeah, yeah. Um, no, John, not, john's I mean, an absolute he's
1: an absolute fundy with these little electronics and stuff and he's he's built really cool net cameras and then and, and i'm sure you know they, they they do work already so the the acoustic receivers we're actually putting in a, a an application for the late i'm not sure if you've heard of wildlife acoustics they send out a a, a grant a call every quarter so this, is, this will be our third attempt to try get some acoustic receivers from them, but um, yeah, oh, we, we, we'll keep pushing, yeah.
0: Oh, good. Well, I'd, I'd love to hear how you get on because I've heard of other people. I know a friend of mine tried it with hobbies in this country, and she had pretty good success. She only put two out, um, but yeah, yeah. she they, they work pretty well in with that species as well, so yeah, good luck with it. Right. Awesome. Um, okay, I'm going to uh, end the video because, yeah, we've got uh, yeah, you, you need to go off and do other things, and I'm sure <laughs> I, I do as well. Um, so, all
1: right, uh, so, yeah,
0: right. Thank you, Gareth. I'm going to end the Cheers, everyone, pleasure. for tuning in. hope, hope, uh, hope Thanks, everyone guys. enjoyed it. Um,